0: All right, well, we are uh, getting into this evening some specific genres of uh, biblical literature and uh, we're going to be looking at um, just some principles, some, some guidelines on um, how to approach these different genres, how to approach and, and, and read uh, these genres properly. Um, and like, like I mentioned last week, uh, tonight we're starting um, with the epistles, uh, the various letters. There's several reasons for this, several reasons I think it's, it's good just to start with the epistles. Um, number one is simply the fact that uh, 21 out of the 27 books that we have in the New Testament are all epistles. Right, so the, the, the vast majority of the New Testament is uh, written as letters either to uh, uh, churches, various churches, um, or to individuals who are, of course, ministering in, in some capacity uh, in those churches. Uh, so, it, so it comprises, of course, uh, most of, of the New Testament. Um, also, um, it, we're going to start with something easy. Right, these are uh, these are the easiest. This is the easiest genre uh, to interpret. Um, Most of all, because it it, it seems to be uh, something that we are more naturally, more familiar with. Right, Um, it's uh, it's not hard. Right, to when you're reading through the letters, even though right, as we saw this morning, Peter uh, acknowledges the fact that some some things that even Paul writes, there are, there are things that are hard to, to understand, but, you know, m- much of it, like you, you can get a pretty good idea of what's going on. Um, you know, when Paul says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? There's no, um, there's no secret meaning to that. There's no, uh, symbolic, uh, you know, f- thing, a symbolic meaning that we're supposed to be deriving out of that. Uh, although it, it is, uh, certainly the case that, um, in the wider world of Christendom, there, there are certainly uh, Christian traditions who, um, who who like to pull additional meetings, uh, meanings out of, uh, you know, very, very plain um, text as well. It's, it's, it's as if the, uh, the literal meaning is, is not sufficient, right? Then, then we have to allegorize and uh, discern some additional spiritual me, uh, meaning. But uh, that, that's not what we're after. That's not what the intention of the authors is. And so there is much in these letters that, uh, quite frankly, is very easy to to understand. Um, there is uh, there's no right, uh, seven-headed uh, monsters, seven-headed beast, or you know anything like that that has any uh, symbolic reference. So uh, even even um, the names, right? You, you read through these epistles and, and you come across names of people and and places, and, and even those don't don't sound as strange and as foreign to us and Uh, part of this is just because the English language derives from, you know, Greek. Most of it comes from Greek and and Latin, and so even a lot of the names, the personal names, Paul, Peter, and and James, right? This is not, uh, this sounds familiar to us. We've we've heard these names before, you know, but that's that's very different from when you're, you know, reading uh, from the Old Testament, written in a Semitic language, and you know, you've got names. Uh, you know, I just pick some random ones. You know, Ahikam, right? Uh, the the, uh, the right? <laughs> this is uh, this is a a totally different language of which English has no connection at all. Uh, so even the names and, and the places, you know, especially from the, from the Old Testament, uh, can can I- I- at least give us a sense of a, more of a strange world because just the language is is different. Um, but the, uh, the ease, the ease of, of reading um, these letters uh, can be a little deceptive, right? So there's a sense of familiarity uh, with us, uh, or that's there in these letters, but um, the apparent ease can be a little deceptive, uh, especially, and we'll, we'll look at this later, but especially in matters of application. Um, so let me give you um, some examples I was, I was thinking about. Um, earlier, Um, how does the excommunication of the brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 relate to us in an environment where the brother can simply go right down the road to another church? The context has changed. The effects of carrying out the process of church discipline and dealing with sin uh, in the church and and arriving at the final point in which you must, as a body, no longer recognize a a person as a brother, so long as they are refusing to repent and turn from their sin. The effect of that um, work in the first century, where there are no other churches to go to, would have been significantly more dramatic. Whereas now, you know, we live in a a context in which there are churches of all kinds of variety, uh, some true churches, some false churches, some healthy churches, some unhealthy churches, on virtually every single corner. And when a church goes through the process of Uh, carrying out biblical church discipline, how do you deal with the, if you will, the lessened effects that that would have when said person can just go right on down the road? So that requires, um, when we are thinking about the Application of 1 Corinthians 5. It it doesn't mean, uh, okay, you know, the context is changing, so we don't practice it at all. But it does require, um, I think, um, a more intentional effort, especially on the part of um, sister churches, uh, churches who are partnering together and associating together. It does require. Uh, much more of a, a, a greater intentionality to not only um, keep up with the spiritual health of the members of their own church, but also others. Right? There, there needs to be more uh, communication. Right? So, so the differing contexts um, can produce if you will, different results in the application of the same action. Um, Think about this one as well. If a church believes that um, charismatic, apostolic sign gifts have served their original purpose and now ceased, we should not be expecting new apostles or new prophets prophesying new words from God, um, or someone speaking in a foreign language that they don't know, i.e. tongues, right? If we believe that that has served its purpose and, and therefore has now come to an end, how do we apply 1 Corinthians 12-14? Because those chapters are dealing with the use of those gifts within the context of the church right so because the context has changed we have to recognize what was going on then and then after we've understood the text properly then make proper application to new new settings so so that can present some challenge what do we do with the verses telling people in the church to greet one another with a holy kiss That's stated four times. Right? Paul writes to the Romans, to the Corinthians, to the Thessalonians. Four different occasions saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. So do you just immediately read that and, and, and transfer it to, to our day and go, we've been in sin because we haven't been kissing each other, you know? Or again, does it require us to uh, maybe dig a little bit deeper Is is there something culturally that was going on that that signifies that we have something that relates to it? Or is it the case that, yeah, we've been in sin and uh, we need to start greeting one another with the holy kiss. Uh, Those are some, those are things that we have to work through. Even when we're reading what appears to be uh, simple letters, we have to account for the context and what the different applications um, may be. As I was thinking about the, the example of the holy kiss as well, it, um, it reminded me, I'd read a couple of weeks ago, and it's it sort of related to um, the, the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. And scripture has given us all things we need for life and, and doctrine, and um, Calvin's, John Calvin's um, A moment in his life when he went a little bit overboard with the sufficiency of scripture um so at one point in calvin's ministry um he argued that the sufficiency of scripture means that when it comes to the naming of your your own children um you you should only give them names that are found in scripture okay and uh when there, there was one family who refused to do that they wanted to give him a, a different name and uh, he moved to to place them under church discipline for it <laughs> um i you know i would argue that that's that is uh pressing the sufficiency of scripture too far uh to me it, it reminds me of what the what the church of christ does you know when they're saying you know when you name a church it has to say church of christ because when Paul writes his letters, you know, he's addressing it to, a, you know, a church of Christ. And therefore, that's like the official title that has to be applied to all churches from then on. Right? Again, uh, that's, a, that's a misapplication of the sufficiency of Scripture. Right? So there's, you know, there's, there's, um, there can be potential pitfalls of making wrong application. And that tends to be where a lot of the errors come about is the, the application of, of Scripture. So reading the letters, it can be a little bit easier than other genres because uh, it, it could be, it, it can tend to be a little bit more understandable, but there are still questions, of course, that we have to wrestle with and, and work through. And I, I want to um, just give some Tonight, give some some guidelines and, and principles for interpreting the epistles, and then we'll, we'll end um, by looking at some potential problems to to be aware of uh, and, and to avoid. So, I want to start just by giving some some general points um, about the epistles, their their nature as a genre, if you will, some of their their basic features that um, uh, that that give us some insight into how we're, we're to interpret them. So uh, one thing has to do with the structure of uh, ancient epistles. Um, they're very similar to what we would be familiar with now in, in letters. Of course there's, there's differences, but very similar in that you have uh, you typically, in all ancient letters in the first century, you have greetings. Um, and then you have the body of the letter, and then you have, you know, fi- final greetings or final instructions. Um, most all of Paul's letters start with a greeting, and then it's um, his typical practice to then move into, before he gets into the bulk of the body of the letter, uh, to move into a section on thanksgiving uh, or, or Blessing sort of, they go hand in hand. And uh, when, we, when we read these opening greetings, and perhaps even the, the thanksgivings, uh, but especially the greetings, it, it can be easy um, to just quickly skim over them, right? that there's, there's a greeting, there's not much, you know, relevant there, we need to really get to, to the meat of it. Uh, but we ought not to do that, because ideas that are typically found within the greetings are often uh, found, they, they resurface again in the body of the letter. It's as if, you know, Paul in particular uh, and, and other writers are preparing us for some of the subjects that they're about to, uh, to bring up. Um, here, here's some e- examples though of the importance of the uh, greetings and uh, the thanksgivings uh, in particular. If you, if you look with me at uh, Galatians chapter 1, uh, Galatians chapter 1, I want to look at this greeting real quick. And uh, what we read here, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Paul, an apostle... Not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's the first time. That's that's the the only letter where he, where he, he begins a greeting like this. Not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Now, he starts this greeting by Speaking of his apostleship as being something that uh, has its origin in God Himself, right, in Christ, and uh, this foreshadows uh, what he's going to say later um, in the epistle—not too too much later. Later in chapter one, if you look down in verse eleven, he says there. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If there is any doubt about the authority of the Apostle Paul, Paul from the get-go is speaking uh, directly to that matter. He did not become, of course, an apostle in the same way that the, the other apostles, the 12, had become apostles. He was, of course, not with Christ throughout the entirety of his ministry, from his baptism to his resurrection. He was not an eyewitness to those things, which made him a different apostle with a different sort of sort of witness. However, He is confronted directly by the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road, at which point he is committed, commissioned by Christ himself to do the work of an apostle in preaching the gospel specifically to the Gentiles. And of course, as the letter continues on, he talks about how he eventually goes down to Jerusalem and he meets with the Sort of the pillars of the church, and James, and then Paul, and uh, or James and, and Peter, and uh, and and they're in full agreement on, on their gospel. Right? There's no division between them. Um, and and Paul even mentions that later in this letter, he himself had to correct one of the other apostles, namely uh, Peter, for some of the ways that he was behaving and departing from the gospel. So so he begins you know, by rooting his apostolic authority, not in man, but in God himself, which is eventually, he says in, in the letter, is, is, uh, was confirmed uh, even by the, the other apostles, right? So, so you, you have here, the point is you have here in the greetings, the importance of the greetings is that they often uh, sort of foreshadow some of the, uh, the things that are to come. Uh, if you look at 1 um, Corinthians as well in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, uh, Paul says there, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Right. He begins here by reminding the Corinthians that they are sanctified in Christ And because of that sanctification, that sanctification, they're called to be saints. They're called to live as those who are sanctified, right? So all of the matters of sin that he's having to address throughout the letter are problems because among many reasons that one could give, the Corinthians are not living according to who they are in Christ. So he's reminding them, this is who you are. You've been sanctified. You are a saint, right? You don't die and then become a saint. You're a saint. Now, live like it. What are you doing going to court against each other, filing lawsuits against one another? Don't you know you are going to be exercising judgment against angels? And yet you can't even carry out these disputes within the church. You are not living as you are. And really, you know, you could boil down to most of the um, ethics of the New Testament to to that basic principle. You are to live as you are. You are a new creation in Christ. Now live like it. And this is what that looks like. The Corinthians were not, so he begins by reminding them who they are. You are saints. Now, let me address all of these, these problems that are problems because you're living contrary to who you are in Christ. Now, because there is a, a basic structure to letters, uh, beginning with the greetings and then the prayer and the thanksgiving, blessing, because that, that basic structure is there, that also tells us that the absence of one of these elements could be of some significance. Um, as it is the case, for example, when you have the absence of a thanksgiving. If you look back at uh, uh, the letter to the Galatians, Galatians is the only letter among the letters that Paul writes to churches That does not begin immediately after the greeting with a thanksgiving. It's the only one. And that tells you something. He's not happy. (laughs) He does not have much to be thankful for. He goes right to the heart of the matter, which is that they're departing from the gospel. There are false teachers, there are Judaizers who are preaching to them a false gospel that will damn them to hell. And he's going right to the issue. I am, what does he say? Verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. The absence of the thanksgiving already signals that Paul is furious. And as you read through the letter, you see that even in the language that he uses. You know, he says of the, uh, the Judaizers at one point, I wish they'd emasculate themselves, right? He is not holding back. And again, so, so, so sometimes the, the absence of one of those standard elements in a letter can also signal something as it does uh, in the case to the letter to the Galatians. Now, following the uh, greeting and the thanksgiving of letters is, of course, uh, the body of the letter. And sometimes the the body can be divided into um, two very distinct parts. Um, Probably the easiest examples of this is... um, Romans, probably chapter 1 through about chapter 11, um, where you've got certainly you have exhortations, you have um, ethical teachings that are there, but the the bulk of it is like an exposition of the gospel, of justification, of sanctification, of election, of the the place of of the Jews and the Gentiles and all of God's uh, works. And uh, and then when you when you get to chapter twelve and on, um, there the emphasis is on exhortation. What, what are the um, what are the practical implications of this gospel? Right? Um, it's the same thing. The basic structure is the same in a letter like Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter one, or, uh, one to three, is largely and. Uh, a short exposition of the gospel and and what God has done for us in Christ. And then that's followed in in, uh, chapters four to six um, with, with chapters that are largely dominated by practical exhortations, right? The household codes, for example, husbands, love your wives, wives, submit to your husbands, children, obey your parents, all of those. So you have a body uh, with a bulk of the um, matters are addressed. And then, of course, it, uh, the letters will conclude with final greetings and, and instructions. And, and those, are, those can be very useful as well, just to see sort of the, um, the real on the ground kinds of things that were going on in, in the church in those days, how those letters were, were getting around and, again, final instructions. Um, so you have the, the basic structure of the letters. Um, another thing, another sort of uh, guideline to keep in mind is the fact that all the letters are occasional in nature. They are occasional, uh, meaning that they are addressing particular matters. Um, that They are not um, uncalled for, just expositions of systematic theology, right? Uh, you know, Paul doesn't just, you know, write a, a book on doctrine. Um, I mentioned this several weeks ago as we were going through um, 2 Peter. The fact that um, virtually all of the doctrine we have from the New Testament comes in response to error that's that's in the church. And uh, and that's what I mean by the letters being occasional, right? There are issues that are going on uh, within particular churches or you know, things, actions that an apostle wants an individual to do, you know, like uh, Timothy or uh, Titus. There are, there are matters that are taking place within the churches that these letters, are, they're very real world letters, are addressing, right? And so we have to have an, an understanding of that occasional nature of the letters. The letters also, because they're occasional, are not um, they're not special revelation that's written, of course, directly to us. There's there's uh, there's no letter that says, uh, you know, First Clark, right? <laughs> Clark, I'm writing this letter to you from signed Paul, sincerely. Right? Um, these uh, these again, they, they have a, a context in the first century. Um, that that's often missed. Now I, I don't uh, I don't expect you all to make those kinds of errors, but that is that's something that is very common, um, even among evangelical Christians, um, to to read Scripture as a whole, to read even the letters of the New Testament, um, as if they are direct letters written to us, and we run into some significant problems. When the very first question that we're asking when we're reading a text is, what is God saying to me? You've gone to the application before you ask the most pivotal question, which is, what did God say to them? You've got to know what is going on, lest you jump over the context and import meanings that the text never meant to have, and then... From that error, you make God say things to us that he never actually said. Right. So for example, I've heard this uh, before. I've heard, um, it's 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, quoted where um, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Right. And true story. Um, I have seen that, that particular verse quoted as a justification for Christians to indulge in whatever desires they want. All things are lawful for me. Missing the fact that in the context, this is um, a slogan that the Corinthians are using to justify living out all of their sinful desires. And Paul is correcting that slogan, right? So if we we pull it right out of the context and then apply it to sinful living, we are actually committing the same error that the Corinthians were committing. So the letters are addressing particular matters first and foremost. Um, Throughout, you can think of um, some of the basic issues. The letter to the Galatians is a letter written in response to the Judaizing heresy and the mixing of justification by faith with justification by faith and works, particularly in that day, the works of the law, circumcision. First Corinthians, letter largely responding to a variety of matters of sin within the church, things that had come to Paul's ears. I've heard you've been, you know, I heard about the lawsuit. Uh, you know, it's, it's actually reported to me that a man has his father's wife, right? These are a variety of matters that he's addressing all through the letter. Philemon, of course, a letter giving instruction about a Christ-like response to a runaway slave, right? That, that is the immediate context of these letters. And when we read through them, we need to recognize what is actually being addressed first and foremost. But their occasional nature does not, of course, remove their ongoing authority and application. The apostles um, certainly, even though they wrote to particular churches about particular matters, uh, they wanted those letters circulated. Which means that, you know, if Paul writes to the Ephesians, he's writing specifically to them, but then he wants what he wrote to them to benefit the Romans. And so that church is going to be copied, it's going to be sent to the Romans. Um, we see an example of this at the, uh, the end of. The book of Colossians in chapter 4 and um, verse 16 in particular, Paul says there at the end of Colossians, he says, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Right? So Paul has the Colossians in mind. But he also knows that this will be of benefit to the rest of the church. Right? So, so we, we have to keep all of those things in mind. That, that tells us then that there is, um, uh, that these letters are authoritative, not just for the first audience that they went to, but for all the churches, which then also, of course, includes us uh, as well. We read also in 1 uh, Thessalonians, uh, chapter 4 and uh, verses 3 to 8, where Paul uh, very clearly says uh, that his instructions are given with the authority of God, and to disregard his instructions is to disregard God himself. Let me pick up in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 3, it says, "For so this is the will of God, your sanctification who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So he is, of course, speaking most immediately to the Thessalonians. But that Thessalonian letter is to be sent to all of the churches. And those instructions that he gives to the Thessalonians are as much applicable to us today. The command to abstain from sexual immorality did not disappear in the first century, of course. And if we disregard the authority of Paul's words, the same is still the case. We are disregarding the word of God. So ongoing application of letters is derived from recognizing the principles that are at at play and and then applying them to to modern situations. Um, Now I'm going to give you uh, next some general um, guidelines for um, interpreting the uh, epistles, some, um, if you will, some, some methods that you can use. Um, and I'm sure some of this will be uh, pretty basic and elementary, but it's worth uh, going over. Um, one thing is, is that it's always helpful to, um, when, you, when you start reading, just to read through a letter all in one sitting. Um, that gives you the big picture, right? There, there are Um, oftentimes in the letters, right, there's, there can be a long sustained argument. And uh, you you may not really get to the sort of the grand point, the the climax of the matter until you get further into the book. So it's a good practice just to, you know, you, you can just speed read through it, get sort of the big picture, and then you can kind of work back through it slowly. So always a good practice just to read through the whole letter in one sitting. Um, I think it's also worth stating as well that this is how the letters were initially intended to be read. So, you know, you receive that letter from the Laodiceans or the letter from the Colossians, and the practice of the early church was that part of your your worship gathering is that someone's going to stand up. They're going to read the letter from Paul, the letter to the Colossians. You're going to read the whole thing, you know. Um, I think it's a... um, it can be somewhat of a, a strange practice. Um, sometimes, you know, when people come here, and we're reading like a whole chapter at a time. It's like, but that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> it's nothing compared to what the early Christians were doing. You know? now, when Paul tells Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, you know, I mean, he's reading a lot. mean a lot. He's he's going to have these letters and he's going to read the whole thing. You know, this is how they were originally intended uh, to be read. So we do want to make that a practice too, reading the whole thing in one sitting. Uh, another helpful thing that, that, um, uh, that you can do is to divide the text yourself into uh, sections by tracing out the argument. Now, you know, you could do this in an outline. Um, you can do this by diagramming. That, that can be helpful. I used to do like diagramming, but you know, now I'll just usually what I do now is just I'm, I'm making notes or, you know, underlining or highlighting those key sort of transition words, you know, for, therefore, so that, you know, all of that um, that shows you the logic of, of an argument. And you can sort of break down the flow of a text by uh, honing in on, on those particular uh, words in particular. So it, it can be helpful sometimes just to Um, do your own outline, or, you know, if you have a good study Bible, you know, usually they have a good outline, it's good to to work through that just to see, sort of, again, the big picture of the letter. Um, In smaller portions of Scripture, um, you want to pay very close attention to those small details that are very easy just to read over um, quickly. For example, prepositions. Theology is built on prepositions. They are packed, full of rich meaning and implications. Let me just show you, show you some, for example. Um, in Ephesians chapter 1, I want to look at this, this phrase. You see it in several places, um, which speaks of Christians being, quote-unquote, In Christ, in him, this idea of being united to Christ. And the works of salvation that God is carrying out in the world and for his people are works that take place in and through Christ. So just notice with me, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, our election. God, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We are chosen in Christ. Our election involves our union with Christ. That's how it can even make sense that a crucifixion that took place 2,000 years ago can have ongoing saving benefits for us now because we've been united to christ from before the foundation of the world further down verse seven in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses verse um uh verse uh we'll read eight and nine uh, which he, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Central to Paul's theology about the work of Christ in the world and our, on our behalf is this idea of our union with Christ. Now, when you get to um, chapter 2 as well, Paul uses, um, it's, in the original language, he's, he's basically attaching prepositions to verbs. He's, he's, uh, he's emphasizing this union um, by stating the fact that just as Christ has been raised, we've been raised with him, with him, with him. Um, so you see this, for example, um, chapter 2, verse 5 and, uh, and, and verse 6. But we'll start in verse 4 for some context. It says there, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. With Christ, by grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This again, goes back to this idea of union. When Christ was crucified, we were with him. When he was raised from the dead, we were with him. That is how we can be justified by our, uh, or from our sins, right? So these, these little, little prepositions, tiny little words, they pack a lot of meaning uh, within them. Um, Also, as you're looking at um, particular, uh, smaller chunks of scripture, you want to Pay attention to the meaning of important individual words. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the importance of a word may just be you, you don't know it, right? So you need to figure out what it, what it means. Uh, but other times, you know, if you, if you see a word, it's constantly repeated all throughout a, a, a section. That's a very important word. You need to know accurately uh, what it is uh, conveying. Um, one of the uh, very important words we find um, throughout Scripture um, also has multiple uses. So that's also something that we have to keep in mind. Words do not have a single fixed meaning. They just don't. Um, you know, we can tell that just by looking at a, a basic dictionary. You know, you've got a, like a variety of uses that a word uh, can, can convey, and uh, you can't just, you know, go to like a Greek lexicon or a Hebrew lexicon or something like that and find a word and, you know, have, have a de- definition for it and then impose that definition on every single text from then on out. The best way to see how or, or what a word means is to see everywhere where it's used, you know, so, so concordances can be helpful if you want a physical copy where you'll have like a word and all of its different uses throughout scripture. Uh, and of course, you know, there's all kinds of Bible software now where you, you don't even need a physical copy uh, as, uh, now, but you can just, you know, do a word search and find all of its different uses. And that's the best way uh, to, to see what the meaning and the different nuances of the, uh, the meaning of a word is. How is it being used in different contexts? So for example, The word sanctification does not have the same meaning in every single context. When we speak of sanctification as a doctrine, it is a word that we use to describe an entire process, right? A whole doctrine, many ideas, Um, I would liken it to, for example, the fact that we use a a word that's actually not found in Scripture, Trinity, to describe a a, a, a variety of things that are going on in Scripture, a variety of statements that are being made about God, about the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. We have one word that just describes this whole doctrine. Well, the, the word sanctification, as we use it to describe a doctrine We use it to describe that idea of Christians progressively growing in holiness, which ultimately culminates in our glorification. That's how we tend to use the word. That's not the only way that the word is used in Scripture, though. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, that text that we looked at earlier in, in the greeting, um, to the Corinthians. Paul says of the Corinthians that they are sanctified. Like it's a completed action. It's done. You've been sanctified. That There's nothing progressive about it. And in that sense, what he's saying is that God has set them apart. You know, just, just like in the, the Old Testament, you had like common vessels, common dishes that could be used to, to eat on and, and all of that. But then you had the holy vessels, those are things that have been sanctified. They're set apart for God's unique purposes. Well, in that sense, the Corinthians are sanctified. In that sense, we are sanctified as a past completed action. God has set us apart. However, you see the progressive use of this word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where it says there, this is the will of God your sanctification. And then he goes on to describe what that sanctification looks like. You abstain from sexual immorality. This is an ongoing process in that use of the word, right? So we just have to remember that words can carry different meanings and different nuances depending on the context in which they are being used. Um, another thing, pay attention to, uh, conjunctions, connective words, purpose clauses. All of these are a gold mine for the meaning of scripture and theology. Um, for example, I'll just, um, use the one that we looked at this morning in second Peter chapter three, right? This, um, this, um, well, what Peter says, is, right. he says, therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these things. Right? Those are connective words that are carrying forward an argument, a, a logical flow of thought. And you see Peter's logic there. Since we are waiting for these glorious realities to come, this is how you're supposed to live. Right? So you want to pay attention to all of those um, connective words um, throughout Scripture because they, they instruct us in how we are to think rightly about the world, about our lives, about God. Um, as, as well as that, those connective words, um, purpose clauses are gold. Um, I'm in Ephesians right now in chapter... 1 verse 4, um, Paul says uh, of God choosing us. He, he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Right? Those, those words communicating the purpose for God's actions tells us what He wants from us. Right? He has chosen us, not so that we can just, you know, boast and you know, kind of do the thing that the, the Jews were doing to Jesus. We have Abraham as our father, right? We are the children of God and, and boast over everyone else. No, no, the, the point of us coming to understand and know that God has chosen us as an act of love is so that we be holy and blameless. This, this is a, a um, motive for godly living. All right, so you're going to pay attention to those easily overlooked words, those purpose clauses, conjunctions, things like that. Now, after doing this work, after um, reading through scripture and paying attention to the flow of an argument and understanding what's going on in the context, then you get to the point of asking the question, okay, now, how does this apply uh, to me, to the church, to a variety of situations um, now? Um, Application should always be rooted in the text. You know, you need to be able to say, you know, if if you've got this, you know, this point, this is how I I am to live. You need to have a text that that's rooted in. Um, Also, application is not always going to be the same for everyone. And uh, I'm thinking in particular, about uh, Romans 14 and um, the, um, the freedom of conscience that, uh, that Christians can have that lead them uh, to have lives that, that look perhaps very different. Um, so, for example, let's just think of a, a hypothetical situation here, right? You have a, you have a Christian um, who, who wants to be a vegetarian, right? They... Uh, they, they they saw a cow get slaughtered one time and it traumatized them for the rest of their life. They, they're, they're never eating a filet again, right? So they're, they're gonna be a vegetarian. And then you have uh, another Christian uh, like myself who, um, you know, I love that cow and I love it even better in my belly, right? <laughs> and uh, I wanna make barbecue and I, and I wanna eat that, that barbecue, right? You got some Christians who are opposed to eating Meat, because it it just does not sit well uh, with them. And then you have other Christians who have no problem with it uh, at all. And of course, in Romans chapter 14, Paul addresses a very uh, similar matter where you have um, Jews who have a a background in the law, um, and uh, some of them are wanting to abstain from certain kinds of Foods. Uh, some of them are, just wanting to eat uh, vegetables and, and things like that. Um, and he says in Romans chapter 14, verse um, 2 to 4, he says, One one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. The, uh, um, The vegetarian is not in sin for avoiding the eating of meat and those who eat meat are not in sin because they are eating meat. But Paul's point is that they will be in sin if they are forcing their peculiar convictions on everyone else without any biblical warrant. Right. The, the only thing that can bind our conscience is the word of God. And even more, Paul goes on later to say at the end of chapter 14, in verse 23, he says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever, one, uh, for, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Right? So, so the vegetarian will be in sin if he or she eats while their conscience is uneasy. So the, the, the actual eating of the meat is not sinful, but the fact that they've now violated their conscience is sinful. Right? So, so you can have different Applications of biblical principles, even um, uh, that that uh, different Christians have in, in their own um, their own lives. This really boils down to uh, though a matter of, of Christian liberty: what is explicitly sin, what is not sin, and we have to recognize that too, because sometimes the Lord, in His own wisdom, in His own providence. Deals with people's consciences differently. You know, you know, if, you, if you've got a background that's you know full of alcohol abuse, substance abuse, you know, things like that. And um, you know the, the thought of even you know getting a whiff of, of alcohol um, you know, causes you to be uh, you know concerned and, and troubled. It may be the case that for this particular person, the Lord has not um, uh, freed them to engage freely in, in something uh, like that. And he may have his own reasons, you know. It may be the case that that person has only seen, seen it abused. And if they were uh, to begin drinking, they would abuse it, you know. That's, uh, that's, that's in the Lord's wisdom. But we have to have room for um, different consciences uh, as well. Now, I know I'm uh, running over time, so let me uh, fly through these uh, last few things, some problems to be uh, aware of. Uh, Number one, avoid assuming that there is a one-to-one correspondence between our words and the words that um, the biblical writers used, or our language and their language. And I'll I'll just give you a, a quick example of this this often comes up when, you, when you're talking about the extent of the, the atonement, you know, who did Christ die for, things like that. And, uh, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll hear, you know, when it says that, you know, God uh, loves the world or that Christ was the propitiation, not only for our sins, but for the sins of, of the whole world. You know, maybe, maybe you hear, well, you know, what does world mean? Well, world means world. What else could it mean? And, and in that case, we, we are assuming our use of the word world is the same use as their, as, as their word. Right. Or you can think, for example the word all. Right? All means all. all. All always means all, right? Everybody who's ever lived at, at any point in time. And um, if you look at uh, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 and uh, verse 18, we can see a very clear example here where the word all does not always mean, All in the sense of everyone who's ever ever lived. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says there, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. If all means all, in the sense of the universal application of everyone who's ever lived before, Paul's a universalist. There's no judgment to come because all are justified before Him. Of course, what I would argue is that in the context, there is a a limitation there, and that limitation of the word all is limited by Christ. He is comparing whether or not you are in Adam or in Christ. And if you are in Christ... This one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all, all who are in Christ. Right? So context is, is very important, um, and, and the point being, especially uh, here, is that words do not always have the same exact meaning in our vocabulary as they did then. Right? Another thing is that we need to avoid assuming our cultural beliefs are the same as theirs. Just a real easy example here. Our culture, when it hears the word love, thinks in a particular way, We're talking about an affection here, a feeling primarily. That's not primarily what is involved when the word love is used uh, in the New Testament, especially. Affection is there, no doubt. But the primary emphasis is on an action. It's what you do. You love God. Not if you just have affections for him, but if you keep his commandments. That's love. It's not just in word, but in deed. So we we have to be aware that even our own cultural assumptions about uh, different words and, and and the meaning of them can be very different. And then lastly, um, avoid drawing conclusions about the meaning of a passage that contradicts passages elsewhere, right? So if you're reading through a text and uh, it appears to to be saying one thing, and that thing that it appears to be saying is in blatant contradiction to something elsewhere, remember as we looked at this morning, Peter and Paul, Peter is saying their message is unified, right? They're speaking about the same things. Um, and scripture being inspired of God is not going to contradict itself. If you are coming to a conclusion about an interpretation that contradicts something else in scripture, you need to reevaluate your interpretation, right? You've come to the wrong conclusion. And uh, of course, a classic example of this is the the whole debate on whether or not Paul and James are saying different things about the doctrine of justification. Are we justified by faith? Or are we justified by faith in works or or justified by works? And uh, you have to read carefully in the context. James and Paul are not at odds with one another. James is particularly addressing the person who is saying that he has faith. But his faith produces no works. And the example he gives is that he he, he sees that his brother is in need, And he just says may it be well with you and he does nothing to help his brother and and James is saying that kind of faith which produces no fruit at all which are just words that even demons can utter that is not a saving faith that's not a justifying faith which is the same exact thing that Paul would say too Paul emphasizes that we are justified before God by faith alone but that faith produces good works if it's genuine, right? And uh, you can think, for example, of like Romans chapter 6. You know, um, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, right? uh, There is a life that goes with our faith. So we want to make sure that we are uh, never causing the, uh, the authors to, to contradict one another. So I'm going to stop there, um, and then uh, we'll see if you...